I'm Michael McMullen. Welcome once again to the World Snooker Tour podcast. And I'm here today with someone who's now one of the longest-serving players on the tour. The great survivor, Mark King. Mark, thanks very much for joining us. No worries. You obviously are from Romford, as everyone knows. And yeah. when you were growing up, that was almost the centre of the snooker world, really, with Steve Davis and all the rest of it. How aware were you of all that? Um, well, to be honest with you, when I, when I first went into the snooker club, the, it was called the Lucania. Um, proper, dingy, divey gangsters, thieves, any walks of life went in and it was a fantastic atmosphere, some real great people in there um, and I never really, like when I first started playing the Nugget was obviously up there but I never really took it, any of it in because I was just more interested in going to the club and just practising um, and basically I used to just sponge games all day pretty mm. much, my mum used to give me a bit of pocket money. Um, and you'd have certain people that would come in during the week that would come in on their own. And they'd come in and practice, and I'd go, oh, do you want a game? I was like 10 at the time. Yeah, all right then. And then what would happen is, throughout the week, the, the following weeks, you'd have three or four people that would come in on their own, and as they'd walk in, they'd go, oh, do you want to have a few frames? And, and like that's how I sort of got my practice, because like, obviously, even though the tables were only, I think they were like a couple of pounds an hour, you know, to go and have like 10 hours, you know, mm. in 1984, you couldn't really tell mum gets a score, gets 20 quid to go and have a practice. You know, you got three or four quid and that was it. Um, so a lot of the time it was, you know, even things like a few of the locals, um, I'd say, do you want anything from McDonald's? And five or six from say, oh, I'll have a cheese, but I'll keep the change and I'd earn like a tenner. Just little, silly little things mm. like that just to earn a little bit of extra money. Um, and yeah, the, you know, the, it was, as I said, it was a great snooker club. And you were very young, I guess, to be mixing in that sort of environment, but probably a good grounding about life and the realities of the world at the same time. Yeah, to, to be fair, I was quite cheeky. I was quite, because I had an older brother who was six years older than me, um, and he always sort of looked out for me. But sometimes I got a bit too cocky, um, and I got put in my place very quickly. Uh, and even my brother said to me, look, you know, I could obviously, I'm your brother and I'll, nothing will happen to you, but mm. you can't be talking to older people like that as I was, because I was quite lippy. Um, I thought I was sort of, not it, but like, I was just lippy. I was just confident in myself and, and just quite lippy. Um, and just, I'm just the same now. You are, what you see is what you get. And that's, that's pretty much me. You talk about lessons in life, Mark. You learned a few, I guess, in your early years on the circuit because you were one of those guys who came into the game just as it was going open. Not many of you still around, but what were those years like? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we used to go to the pro tickets in, like, Prestatin. Uh, you had Breen Stands, Hastings. There was obviously, you know, you had to get you a certain amount of merit points. Obviously, I wasn't good enough to get that far in them days. So, obviously, when the game opened up, it was literally just pay your thousand pound, whatever, and everyone turned pro. Uh, the first year was like Bolton, I think Aldershot, uh, Sheffield, I think there was four clubs that had their tables done, and we all sort of, you know, made our way as professionals. Um, and it was good, it was really good, you know, obviously you, certain players were in certain areas, and you just, I just literally got on with it. Um, you know, not a great first season, I think I finished 209 after the first year, then I was one eight nine, and then like you know eighty nine, and then I sort of after about five or six years is when I sort of got into the game properly and you know sort of made my mark, um, and you know started you know doing some pretty decent stuff. 
about 25 years ago we're talking here now and yeah. once you started having one or two good tournaments you actually started having a lot of them and you were becoming something of a regular and at least mm. the later-ish stages of tournaments you got to your first final 1997 you remember yeah. against Stephen Henry yeah. he was just unbelievable yeah, at the yeah. time and it was great actually I remember he beat you very heavily that's not the great bit but yeah. what I remember was you took it so well I don't know if you remember this I think it was in the last frame he was at the table he hadn't missed for about three or four yeah, frames yeah, yeah. and you actually started applauding him which yeah. I thought was a really graceful way to take it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, um, in 1997, he was obviously the dominant force of the game. Um, and in all fairness, I was just really happy to make the final. I beat some really good players on the way. I beat Williams 6-5 in the semis. That was a really good match. And obviously, he was one of the ones that was charging behind Hendry at the time. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it was just, as I said, I, it was a learning curve. And I just, I really enjoyed it. I got me bum proper smacked, got beat 9-2. And I, can rem I remember my dad saying to me before, listen, just enjoy it and just play the table. Don't worry about who you're playing. And I remember breaking off. He went long red 140. Second frame, whatever I broke off, I played a safety shot. He went long red 102. I sat there smoking me Regal at the time because we were sponsored by Regal Welsh. Um, and just in awe of him and, and like just realised how far behind I was in the sense of the game and, you know, how to play the game properly. Uh, and it was another good, you know, stepping stone to becoming a better player. The next final you were in, Mark, was seven years later. Probably a final that suited you better, actually, because you were up against Peter Ebden. Now, he likes to make it very difficult. Yeah. But you're never afraid to get stuck in like that. And that's actually a strength of your game as well. And you ran him very close in a very tactical yeah, final. Yeah, I mean, um, Peter, you know, he's a bit like myself. You've got to scrape him off the table. Um, he's never going to give up. You know, there's a few players that would fall a few frames behind um, and and they would sort of give up, if you like. But where Peter, you know, he could be 9-0 down first to 10 and he'll still be trying extra hard. You know, just in, you know people like Peter Ebden, Fergals, you know, them sort of players that have such got grit and determination. Um, and yeah, and I feel as though that time I was more in shape to win it rather than be there to enjoy it. Mm. And yeah, I did myself proud. I was going for a lot of things at the time uh, behind closed doors and, uh, you know, really, you know, respected that I got to the final and beat some really good players. I beat Hendry, I think Jimmy on the way, Dot on the way, I think Ken. So, uh, you know, I beat some real great players on the way to the final. And it was a long wait then before your next ranking final, yeah. almost 13 years in yeah. fact, and on the other side of the Irish border in Belfast. So a bit out of the blue as far as everyone else yeah. was concerned, but how did you feel going there? Did you feel this could be a good week for you? Totally the opposite. <laughs> totally the opposite. I was um, always say this, I was playing my pal in Clacton, Alex Davis, um, and I was going over there like three, four, five days before and we was playing like first to nine. Um, and at the time he was he was still an amateur, nine two, nine three, nine four. And I was literally so disheartened and thinking that you know, you know this the way I'm playing. I don't feel as old because I was playing Igor the first round. Igor Figueroa, yeah. Which at the time, no disrespect to Igor, he was a bit wet behind the ears and you know quite a good draw at the time. Where now he, you know, he's he's a very good player now. Um, and I, I sort of scraped through beating 4-1, my tip split, uh, put a new tip on that I'd had in my case, uh, and I played Wembo the second round, and I played really well, the best I played for a while, so I had a lot of confidence as the sort of week went on, not really thinking anything of it, because at the time, as obviously you see in the interview, 
I was potless. So every match it was like, oh, I've got another grand. And mm. like, and when I got to the semis, I was ringing the missus saying, like, we're going to be all right. You know, I've got a few grand now. We can survive for a while. And it was like, like hallelujah sort of thing. And then when I made the final, it was like, yes, you know, I made the final. Come on, get on the plane. You're all coming over. Um, and yeah, like just that day, just to, you know, to come back 5-1 down and to end up winning was, you know, just, yeah, an unbelievable achievement. And... Just to have my family there was just the absolute icing on the cake. How bad was the money side of things, Mark? I mean, were you really in trouble? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, God rest his soul, one of my real good pals, uh, Brad, he was like, you know, sorting me out. I'd say, like, can you put a grand in my account? Because he knew I was winning, and he was saying, well, just give it to me. when you Like, he was good as gold if I ever needed anything. You know, there's very few people that would do that. Sure. You know, and it's probably three or four people that I've met in my life that if I was really desperate, I could ring up and say, look, things ain't really going that well. I need cut two or three grand. And Brad was one of them. And yeah, he was like, yeah, whatever you need, just let me know, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, and I think at the time I had like, and this is no word of lie, I think I sat like 23p in the bank. And that's no word of a lie. And obviously the money to survive that week like Brad was just transferring me two or three hundred quid. Oh, that'd do for me hotel and a bit of food and that. And when the family come over, he transferred me, I think, another fifteen hundred. So he paid for the flights and the accommodation. And then obviously once I'd won, got my prize money in, I'd, I'd just sort him out. But, you know, he was just one of them really kind people that, you know, when you was in need, he was a, he was a good friend. And it's just a shame that he's not here. I remember towards the end of the final, looking at the way you were playing and your body language, and you'd waited a long time to get that close to yeah. winning a final because you hadn't mm. gone yeah, quite so close yeah. in the other two. And also, as you say, you'd been 5-1 down. So you looked to me like someone who had a mindset, right, this is my chance, and I'm just not letting this go. I'm not leaving this arena without that trophy. Yeah, yeah, it, it was a real defining moment in the match. I can remember, and this might sound really silly, I was 5-1 down. And I actually give myself a bit of a kick and I was like, you know, you really need to start trying. Not that I wasn't trying, but there was a lot more like grit and determination to give and I didn't feel as though I'd actually started giving it yet. And I was going, look, Barry's a class player. Barry's not just going to walk walk out, you know, let you walk all over him and win this title. Barry wants to win it just as much as you. So I give myself a right kick up the plums and, you know, the next... Six frames, I just played real good stuff, real, you know, determination. I think I won the next six on the spin, went to the interval, seven, five up. Um, and then I started thinking about winning it and then <laughs> threw a few quick ones in and got a little bit twitchy. But yeah, uh, especially the frame before last, uh, well, obviously the pink and black left and, yeah, we had a mega safety battle. Oh, the drama was yeah, incredible. And now, yeah. and now I sort of got to the re-spot and then I had the sort of double to win the, the win the match but weren't quite a double and yeah and hit the bump and didn't get the white right and all that and I was like oh and then I literally came out at eight all and um my my youngest Polly at the time I think she was six um and there was a big if you remember like the the tent it was mm. quite a massive open space wasn't yes, there? it was yeah. and as I walked out to the toilet because it was it was like this little shed really uh and Polly was just doing cartwheels and, and I was like, and I looked over and I thought, do you know what? It don't really matter. Like everything that needs to be, you know, nice is here already. You know, Polly don't care. Obviously the wife can't watch because she's a nervous wreck. Um, 
and it held me in good stead for the last frame because I thought, do you know what? If the worst comes to the worst and I'll get beat, it's it's been it's still been a good week. And you got over the line. At that stage, Mark, you'd been a pro for a quarter of a century. Yeah. You'd had your struggles, you'd had your ups and downs mm. all through it all, and you'd had to continue working at your game, which you obviously did because yeah. you kept getting results. Mm. Was it a case when it was all over and you were standing there with that trophy that you felt, yeah, this means it's all been worthwhile now? Yeah, I mean, I think um, over the years... I had sort of stages where obviously I gambled heavily um, and I didn't put the effort in and you know you, you don't get you don't get anything for nothing um, I found that out so you know the times where I really should have won titles and where I'd got close and weren't really putting the effort in was probably a few probably two or three times where I should have won or at least got to other finals where I was just more concerned about the betting shops um, but yeah, like when I won, it was just like, oh, yeah, like, yeah, this is, you know, this is what I've worked for. At least, you know, I've done it once. Worst comes to the worst, I'll never do it again. I've had that, you know, I've got the trophy at home and it'll be, you know, lots of people come up to me and say, you know, it's one of the best finals we've seen. And obviously the interview after, and he said it was very like, heartwhelming and that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, so it was just, yeah, it was nice. It was nice to see come home and see my dad. Because obviously my dad weren't there, my dad was a little bit poorly, um, and it was really nice to you know have a, a hug with him and sort of celebrate it because he. And then obviously, I think we had an interview the next week, and me and my dad was on the telly. I'd, I'd lost to Sam Craigie first round. Me and my dad was on the telly, and Hazel was asking him questions, and he couldn't even finish a sentence without obviously. He was so proud, tears in his eyes, and like you know. But that's what it's all about. It's all about. You know, all the people around you, because it's lovely for myself, but in all fairness, it meant more to me that my dad was able to see me win, because he, you know, he wasn't a young man, he was in his 80s, and I thought, you know, he might not be here to see me win a title, and to, for him to see it, he's like icing on the cake, kids were there, the missus was there, that's just like the be-all and end-all. It's been a long, hard slog, but he is about to get his hands on his first ranking trophy. And my word, he's done it the hard way, and he deserves to celebrate. His family are here, they're going to have a great night. There are some tears, I can tell you, in his eyes. It means the world to him, it means everything to him. Mark King is the champion in Belfast. So many people who have success in sport, Mark, talk about someone, usually someone they're related to, who's had a big influence on them, been their guiding hand, I suppose, throughout mm. their career. You could not have dreamed of having a better mentor in your life to guide you along than your dad, Bill. Mm, yeah, yeah. He, I think I was fortunate enough because he was always into snooker before I started playing. Um, you know, he used to manage the snooker club in the 60s called the Regal in Romford. And, you know, the same sort of rough and ready club, hooligans and, you know, not so nice people going in there, gangsters, blah, blah, blah. Um, but he always tried to guide me in the right direction. He let me sort of get on with it and... He always said a few really good things to me that I never really took in because I was only a youngster. I was 19, 20, bit of a jack the lad, thought I was it, didn't really want to listen to my dad. And everything that he told me was, you know, true. And I wish I'd have just took more in as a youngster, but obviously because I was a kid, um, never really took it in. But yeah, he's always, he's been there for me since day one, driving up and down the country, going to pro-ams, getting beat free, you know, driving five hours and getting beat 3-0 and driving straight home. 
Do you know what I mean? And he never ever moaned about it, never moaned about, you know, the money he spent because we're only come from like a council. We, you know, my mum and dad weren't wealthy, but everything that he had where he was doing his wheeling and dealing, he just gave to me. And if it was his last tenner to get me in a tournament, he'd pay it. And, you know, I'll be forever grateful to him for the, you know, the support and the generosity that he's given me. And hopefully I'll do the same to my kids if they need anything and I can give it to them then they can have what they want. And when he was coming to tournaments regularly, he was such a well-liked figure yeah. on the circuit. Everybody loved to see him yeah. around, and he is missed at the venues nowadays. Yeah. He obviously wasn't there, as you say, in Belfast, but your own immediate family, your new family, yeah, were, yeah, were yeah. there. What kind of a night was it, Mark? It must have been such a celebration. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny, though, because me and my wife don't drink, so it weren't like, oh, we had a few sherbets and we got yeah. a bit... Is that a recent thing, or did you... No, you... I've, always, I've always really been... Um, I've never really liked drink. I've had, always gone out, had a few, you know, when we've been at tournaments and I've got beat, a few of the lads, we'd go out and have a beer. Um, but I, I was always one of them that after I'd had a few and I knew I'd had enough, I'd stop and start drinking water where the others would carry on and like yeah. absolutely off their head sort of thing. Uh, but I never really like, you know, people go home and they're like, oh, I have a nice can of beer and sit there. I've never been one of them people that's enjoyed it. You know, I'd go out socially, but it wouldn't bother me to go out clubbing or anything like that and just drink water and just have a good... Because I don't change. If, if I've had a beer, I'm just the same person as when I'm sober. I don't need to have a beer to talk to people or have a giggle with people, you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, it was pretty quiet. We actually got... Um, all the Eurosport people were, were in the hotel... Uh, and we managed to find a little pizza place and we got a load of pizzas for everyone. And just like, to be honest, you had a Coppenberg, the missus had a Coppenberg, and literally we just sat there and, and pretty much, because it was new to us, it never mm. won before. Um, so, I remember Anthony Hamilton saying that actually, he didn't know how to celebrate because yeah, he hadn't won a tournament yeah, before, yeah, before that, he that's did. It. So um, it was just nice and mellow and, and just literally, you know, to sort of, I didn't really sleep that well that night. Um, don't think I want to sleep till about five and got up a couple of hours later. But just literally, just all the messages and the texts, the Facebook Messenger and everything, you know, I had like a thousand in Twitter, two thousand in Facebook, and just all people all over the world just congratulating me and just saying, you know, this, your story about me gambling and that sort of stuff was really heartfelt. And they, you know, there are lots of people from all over the world to congratulate. It's just a really nice thing. And you mentioned that interview there, Mark, that everyone loved so much. It's funny, you know, all the media training and everyone's so polished now and told to say this and say yeah. that. Now you just went out and spoke from the heart. And I yeah. think that was why people liked it so much. Yeah. So maybe that's actually what people should do, just say what yeah, they really I feel. Mean, I mean, you know, I always say it, that when, you know, when you're giving an interview or, you know, I've never done an interview and thought, right, what am I going to say? Because it would just come from whatever I think at the time is what I'll say. I don't need to rehearse anything. It's just from the cuff and that's it. And obviously some things I might say might be a little bit, some people might go, oh, but it's from my heart. It's from whatever I feel at the time, I will say the truth and I won't hide behind anyone or anything. And that's why I think I like myself because I don't, I don't try and be anyone I'm not. Do you know what I mean? I, I'm just, as I said to you before, what you see is what you get. If you don't like it, then I ain't really bothered. And I think another thing people liked about the interview you gave, Mark, was you were actually quite critical of yourself and the way you'd conducted yourself in the past and you acknowledged that you hadn't done things right and you yeah. alluded to the gambling, as yeah. you mentioned yeah. there. 
you've gone into great detail in the past about what that all involved, so we don't need to go through that again. But how, in general, do you look back on that era in your life now, the gambling years? Um, in all fairness, it's just a learning curve. I've I've always said it, and me and the missus speak about it, that you know, if I hadn't gone through them turbulent times of gambling, then I wouldn't be the person I am now. And she, my missus says to me, look, I wouldn't change anything about you. Just as long as <clears throat> I do my meetings, and and that's still you know once a week I go and do my meetings in you know two or three different GA meetings. Uh, during lockdown, I was on the Zoom every week. We were zooming and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, I'm I'm really happy in in the sort of situation I'm in at the minute with my GA and you know no never gonna never gonna as long as I do my meetings, I'll never gamble again. Simple as that. That's Gamblers Anonymous. <coughs> Gamblers Anonymous, yeah. yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah it's a real, it's just obviously a self-supporting group. Um, but lucky enough in Essex, there's, you know, on a Monday night, you can go to like Harold Hill, Gideon Park, Tuesday, you can go to Basildon, Wednesday, you can go to Newbury Park, Thursday, you can go to Brentwood, Friday, you used to go on Leon C. So every day of the week, there's a place within like 40 minutes of where I live. So if I'm playing snooker on a Monday and don't get to my regular meeting or a Wednesday, then I can always do another one. And there's, you know, there's, everyone knows what I do. And you know, you more rooms you go to, the more people you get to know, and you can help. Or you know, people might be able to help me if I've got a problem. I can sit there and you know, and bleed it all out, and I'll get good advice from people that have either been through it or just give me advice that maybe you know I might look at it from a different angle, and they go, listen. Why don't you try it like that? And, and you might think, oh yeah, I didn't think of it like that. And it's just it's just great for a, a gambler to go into a room and speak to other gamblers that know exactly what you're talking about. It's easy. Yeah, if I speak to my missus about compulsive gambling, she ain't got a clue because she she's never lived it and and been a compulsive anything. So that's why a GA room's the best for me. See the last two minutes where they came out. I've been dreaming of that ever since they've been born. And I never thought it would happen. Um, and obviously, 42 years old, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm on the last nine. I'm on the last nine of my career. Um, so just that one, you know, just them coming out and seeing me winning is, is everything. And, you know, my wife's been unbelievable. The last few years, I, I used to compulsive gambling, treat her like absolute crap and she's stuck with me. She's be, just been an absolute rock. Um, and I can't thank her enough. She's just an agent. The English Open recently. Yeah, it was yeah. almost exactly five years since you had won the Northern Ireland Open. So yeah. when you got to the semis and you'd beaten Judd Trump in that remarkable quarterfinal, were you starting to dream that maybe it could all happen again? No, not really, not really. Because obviously um, it's another day and another you know opponent in front of you, um, and it just so happens it, on the night it just didn't. I didn't really click. This is against Robertson yeah, then, against in the semi, Robertson, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I had him really. I had, I had him by the short and curlies, to be honest with you. And I just really let him off. Um, I didn't quite. Probably the worst I played a week because I was curable so well a week. And then just didn't quite find my timing um, on that evening. But really happy on the week. Uh, you know, beforehand, as I said, I was like 59 beforehand, sort of looking over my shoulder. Mm -hmm talking to my wife about Q school, I'm not going to go, and blah, blah, blah. And then, like, a month later, you know, I'm, I'm so far this way, and I'm not looking back anymore, which is nice. 
Um, but it's just all down to, you know, a lot of a lot of hard work, a lot of sacrifices and, you know, just working on the stuff that I'm not very good at, basically, because, you know, it's all it's always good practicing the, the things that you're good at. But we sort of sat down with um, my sort of mental coach, uh, Noel Flannelly, and um, we sort of looked at the stuff that I'm not very good at. So it was all about the stats and the percentages and all that and what I need to work on. And we've devised the plan. And so far, it's been going It's been going pretty good. If you'd got through that semi-final, Mark, there would have been an extraordinary stat about you. I don't right. know if anyone mentioned this. You would have been in your first four ranking finals in four different decades. Oh, okay. The 90s, the 2000s, yeah. the 10s, that yeah. was the one that you won. Yeah. And now, of course, we're in the 20s. It's remarkable. Oh, I've Longevity. still got nine years left. Still, that's the thing. Isn't I've it? still it got another nine, nine You've years. You've got plenty of time. <laughs> and now, of course, if you do it, you can tell everyone that yeah, because, yeah, because yeah. you'll know it. But why is it, Mark, that you've managed? Because it isn't actually the normal thing to be successful for that long. So what's the key to it for you? Um, I just think it, it's one of them things that you're always, you're always learning about yourself in this game, I've found. And, you know, when I lose, I don't really take it that well. Next, you know, if I've got me an hour after, please just don't talk to me because I sort of digest it over in my mind. You know, I should have done this. Why didn't I play that? Blah, blah. And then after the hour, I go, right, okay. Um, nothing you can do about it now. And then every time I lose a game, I learn from it and try and, you know, just pick out the things that I wasn't very good at. As I said, we're talking about the stats, try and be better at my stats. Um, and I just think it's it's just the will to win, the will to want to win, and the will to keep competing. Um, and it's quite disrespectful sometimes because you get a lot of the uh, not saying yourself, but some of the others that call you like um, a veteran. And I think that's quite. Well, I ain't really a veteran. I'm like a year older than Ronnie. They don't call Ronnie a veteran or Williams a veteran. You know, That's a fair point. Yeah, I'm not yeah. a veteran. I'm I'm just a, a long-standing player that you know deserves. I think just a little bit more respect. As in, like you know, I'm not a journeyman in a boxer. I'm not a veteran. I'm I'm just a player that's still a good player at 47 because I think I look after myself. I don't drink. I don't smoke, and I work hard at my game. You know, I don't. I don't have days off. I play Saturdays and I play Sundays. I play all through the week and I play Saturday and I play Sunday. So, like, you know, <clears throat> when we had these seven, eight weeks off where we had sort of gaps in the calendar, you know, and you speak to players, oh, do you want a game next week? I'm having a week off. Mate, I weren't one of them people having a week off. I weren't even having days off. I'd get beat and the next day I was in the club. And I was just thinking, like, I need to improve on these stuff. And, and now, at the minute, touch wood, that, you know, things... You know, I'm I'm getting through, and I and I'm not playing at the top of my game. I'm still playing consistent, but my game's sort of better, and I ain't really playing any better. I'm probably not playing as good, but my sort of B game's still good. Like you know, I always talk about Selby. Selby can win on his E game because he's <laughs> he's got such a good. Well, even when he's not potting, you know, just puts you in so much trouble. And it's just nice to know that when you're not quite firing on all cylinders, that you've got a backup game that can still win. But people almost criticise you for that. And again, I think it's very unfair. Yeah. You win a match, 
you've not made any big breaks yeah. in it. Yeah. And people say, oh, well, you know, he's not really up to it at this level. But yeah. I take the opposite view. Yeah. The fact that even though you weren't playing at your best, yeah. you were able to fall back on another yeah. game yeah. and get the result, which ultimately is what it's all about. Yeah. Perhaps that's been your greatest strength over the years. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, you, you look at, you know, the snooker book uh, over the years and that, and it doesn't say Mark King v. So-and-so. He didn't make a break over 50, but he won. All it basically says is you won. And, you know, Griffiths told me something a long, long time ago when I was working with Terry. He said, look, he said, don't worry about, you know, making all the breaks. He said, listen, if you get to five first and your highest break's 20, he said, who cares? So we come now, Mark, to what I call the quickfire round, where I just throw a few topics at you. And, well, I don't think you need to be asked to do this. It's just say the first thing comes into your okay. head, which I know is what you do anyway. Okay. Shot clocks. Oh, I'm not really bothered. You're not a fan of them? No, I mean, you know, people say about people playing slow and all that. It's just the way they play. And, you know, we can't all, you know, you can't always see the shots like Ronnie Season or Trump or, you know, Higgins, them sort of players. You know, if someone like, I'll give you an example, Lee Walker plays quite slowly, Fergal plays quite slowly, but they're still really good at their sport just because they don't play 100 mile an hour. You know, it's just the way they play. They don't mean to play slowly. They just, that's just the way they play. And I just think, you know, just just leave them alone. Players you would go on a night out with? Oh, my God. There's a few. Uh, if you had to pick two or three, who would pick be? Pick two yours? or three. Mm. Night out with uh, Matthew Selt, um, Ollie Lyons and probably Jimmy Robertson. That sounds like a fun night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it really does. Your favourite movie? Favourite? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, either Rocky or Superman. Guess Northern Ireland Open was a bit of a Rocky yeah, story. Wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. The best place you've ever been to on holiday? Best place? Oh, um, Cancun in Mexico. Okay. And the best you ever played in a match? Oh, best I ever played. Um, oh, that's a hard one. I played Dean Reynolds in a qualifier at Blackpool and I think I made like three total clearances in an 80 and something like that. There's been two or three times where I played fantastic snooker and, and not missed the ball. I mean, I played I, think I played a, a Chinese guy in the Scottish last year uh, and I beat him 4-0 and I don't think he scored a point. That's probably one of the best ones I've played recently. From the 28th of February to the 6th of March, Snooker's top stars head to the ICC in Newport to do battle at the Bet Victor Welsh Open. For a limited time only, tickets are available from just £10. Don't miss out. Book now. Head to wst.tv forward slash tickets. You mentioned Rocky there, and you've done a bit of boxing. Yeah. And Andy Hicks played Quinton Han at the Crucible. And yeah. Quinton wanted to fight him afterwards yeah. and Andy had no interest in it, but you had quite a bit of interest. Yeah. So suddenly, next thing you know, I think it was at Bethnal Green, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the two of you were there oh, yeah. in front of a crowd. Yeah. So how did it go from a row between Andy Hicks and Quinton Hand to you getting in the ring with Quinton? Well, it it was all a bit of a giggle, really. It was nothing like when I'd lost 10-9 to Graham Dot at the Crucible and when I, um, when I came out and did my interview... The interview, I can't remember who it was, said to me, oh, blah, 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 uh, Quinton, blah, 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 Andy Hicks wants to fight him and all that. And I just said off the cuff, just like, he said he wanted to fight him for 10 grand. So I said, I'll fight him for 10 grand. Like, just a, just a bit of a laugh. 
Um, and obviously at the time, uh, Quinton was managed by a guy called George Barnby. And he rang me and said, do you want to fight him? And I went, really? Like, Because I was like, really? I said, it was just a bit of banter. And anyway, cut a long story short. I said, yeah, go on then. I said, well, let's have a giggle. Uh, yeah, and we, we, we met up. Uh, we devised a sort of plan. Um, it was in the papers and it just went massive. Went really, really big. Um, and yeah, I, I really enjoyed the training because obviously, as I said, I'm a Rocky fan. Um, you know, I did all the training, which was really good. Got as fit as I could have been, but just ain't a very good boxer. You know, I'll have a, I'll have a, uh, a fight in the street with someone, but like, you know, to get hit by someone and not get angry is one of them things where like, you look at a boxer on the telly and you go, oh, he's crap. I'll beat him, you know, but you don't realise how hard it is until you actually do it. Um, and it really opened my eyes up to, you know, that boxers, you know, are real, you know, it's a real hard sport. Um, and I did it once uh, and I probably wouldn't do it again. It did actually ring me a couple of weeks later and said, you want to do a rematch? Because I went, no, no, thanks. Once is enough. Yeah, once yeah. is enough. Loved it. I enjoyed it. Great crowd. It was packed out. There was like 1,500 people there. Um, and it was amazing. It was one of the best best nights of my life, to be honest. Speaking of other sports, it was often said of you when you were younger that you were a keen footballer. Mm. So how true is it? What kind of level were you at? Um, I always, I was quite small as a 10-year-old, but always, um, Ray Parler was a year older than me. We went to the same school and he played for Arsenal. Mm. And the guy that scouted him kept knocking on my door. And listen, I ain't saying I'd have been, you know, whatever, but... I think I was one of them people that whatever I applied myself to, I could have, I'd have been decent at it. And I was a good footballer. I was only small, but I was a centre-back. One Never afraid of a tackle. Never afraid of a header. Um, and I've always been the same. I still play football now. I still play vets football. Um, I love it. I just love the, you know, just just love football. Um, and it was just, a, it was a pick. I always played football. Um, this guy kept coming around, please come and play for this team, want to trial you, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, I want to play snooker. I went to the snooker club when I was 10, as I've said. Um, and I was just interested in snooker. I weren't interested in football. Um, but I think, I'm not saying I could have made it by any means, but I'd have had a chance of doing all right. I'd have had a chance of doing all right because, as I said, whatever I think I apply myself to, I'd have worked hard at it. Um and I think I'd have, I'd, have got, I'd have got paid for it, whether it had been non-league or, you know, wherever. But um, I'm glad I chose snooker. It's unlikely you would ever have been ranked as the 11th best footballer in the world. No, But no. you were at snooker, <coughs> yeah, so you yeah. made the right choice. Mm. Coming back to snooker then, one thing that is perhaps missing from your career, Mark, that you might have expected to happen is going on a really good run at the Crucible. You've got yeah. the second round a few times, but mm. never quite made it further. Is that something that bothers you that you think yeah, you'd love to I have mean, that once? Yeah, I've always wanted to play like the one table set up um, and just really never performed. I played, I think I played Ding there a few years ago. I lost to Ding a couple of years ago, I lost 10 9. Uh, I played Ding two or three years before in the second round, six two up, and just totally lost my way. Um, and he played some unbelievable snooker. I think he beat me thirteen ten, but I've never really gone there and played amazing consistently. I've played well like one match, and then the second round I've I've never really got going. I've been in front a few times six two, and then just had a horrible second session. 
Um, yeah, and I feel as though like I've still got quite a bit left in the tank, and it it'd be nice to go a bit, even just to get to the quarters, just for once, mm-hmm. getting the quarterfinals, um, and you know, just get some ranking points and just play in front of you know, because when I played Ding a couple of years ago, there was no crowd there. Um, yeah, that was the year that there was yeah, hardly any yeah, crowd for any of it. Weird. Of I think the first yeah. session we had a few in, and the second session they they closed it off. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, the Crucible is just a great place to play. It's either the worst place on the planet or the best place because it's so obviously enclosed. Uh, but yeah, it would it'd be nice to have a good run there before obviously I finish whenever that is. And I get the sense from you, you said earlier you wouldn't go to Q school, but mm. the impression I get from talking to you is that for as long as you're on the tour and eligible to play, you're just going to keep going and not think about the finish at all. Yeah, yeah, that's it. it it's, as I said, when I was having a, a chat with my wife about it, and obviously I was ranked 59, 60, you got to sort of think of the pros and cons, and I said, I ain't going Q school, but as long as I keep winning a few matches here and there and then getting to the, the final stages and keeping my ranking... Um, you know, who's to say how long I can play for? You know, because at the end of the day, it ain't like it used to be, like, oh, it's a young man's sport and all that. You know, yourself like myself, Ronnie, you know, your Higgins, your Williams, are still competing at the highest level. And they're, you know, in their mid to late late 40s. So it's not a young man's sport anymore. And I think still after all these years, Mark, you're still one of those players who anyone else, when they look at the draw and see who they're up against... They hate to see their name against yours. And I mean that in a good way because you yeah. make it so difficult for everyone. Yeah. It's great to still have that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when, when you, you're you not quite playing your best and you have a few losing runs, um, I'd like to think that people still think, like, oh, I don't really want to draw in. But I think it's it's one of them things where you just have to, whoever you play, that's it. And, yeah, I, I'd like to think that people, I've got enough respect in the other players to think, you know, he's, He's going to be a tough draw whoever he plays, you know, whether I play the world number one or the person who's at the bottom of the tour. I'd like to think that I'd get respect as in, you know, he's still been on the tour 100 years and he's still fighting fit, still getting to semis and quarters and, and being, you know, in the latter stages. So, you know, I think I probably deserve that. You know what I mean? But you, if you start going into matches thinking, oh, I'm only playing him, then you, you're in big trouble because, you know, anyone on the tour can beat anyone on their day. In a way, you've had the last laugh because you look at players like you, Fergal O'Brien, who you mentioned, Anthony yeah. Hamilton, and yeah. a few others. Lee Walker is still around yeah. as well, yeah. of course. Maybe when you were younger and there were other guys coming through for a similar age making centuries all over the place, people were saying, oh, these guys are just scrappers and grinders. But you're the guys who are still on the tour after 30 years. Yeah, yeah. Funny enough, me and Fergal, um, we used to play at Ilford Snooker Centre together when the other club that I played at shut down. There was a load of us there. Ken was there. Eugene Hughes was there. Fergal was there. Myself. A guy called Chris Gallen. There was about 15 pros there. And we really got a great um, apprenticeship into each other because there was one table at the end and that was the only table we could play on. And what would happen is you'd play winner stays on all day. And like I'd get there at, say, 9.30. Fergal would already be on the table playing someone. So whoever won out of them two, I would play the winner. But then as soon as you got beat, the likelihood of you getting on that table again was there was too many people in line. So you either went down the back and had a practice or you went home. And it was just great. You know, it was it was like blood, you know, half nine in the morning. If you got beat 4-3, then, you know, you, you'd either go home or go and practice down the back. 
And that's why I think myself and people like Fergal cracked on because, you know, we were getting such good practice um, throughout so many years. And, you know, it, it just moulded us into, you know, good, really good match players. And you've never dropped off. You've never gone to Q school. You've never gone looking for no. wild cards or anything. No. And here you still are, Mark. After all these years, still playing well, still speaking honestly about everything. And it's mm. been a real pleasure to have you, you. on the World Snooker Tour podcast. So nice thanks one. for joining Ta, us. mate. Thank you. Next week on the World Snooker Tour podcast, it's the talented young Welshman, Jamie Clark, who, among so many other things, will be telling me about a lifelong struggle to believe in his own ability. It frustrated the, the heck out of my, um, my stepdad, because he always rated me quite highly. Um, not, I don't think he was being um, favouritism or whatever, but it, was, it wasn't... Um, yeah, it's just strange. Just, it, just didn't have any self-belief. And then when I did turn pro, it was sort of... It was weirdly a surprise because I didn't think I was going to do it. But, yeah, I was obviously pleased. And we had the old, um, my staff that I always said would say the old uh, Only Fools and Horses line. We've had worse days. <laughs> and we said it when we got in the car then. It was a really nice drive home. So that's coming up next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast. And don't forget to check out our bonus content, The 147, rounding up the week's snooker headlines in 147 seconds every Tuesday. Until then, thanks so much for listening and goodbye.